Hello and welcome to Russians with Attitude, the best podcast in the universe with the most humble of hosts. My name is Ivan and my friend here is Tapor. <laughs> yes, hello Ivan. <laughs> Today we are going to discuss the Ukrainian question. You might think that this is gonna be predictable. Two Russians, one named Ivan, another Tapor, are gonna chimp out in the most uh, cerebral of fashions. Well, you would be wrong. We would never stoop to the level of Asiatic Eastern European. So our discussion will be thoroughly civilized. I know what you're waiting for. Crazy war stories, conspiracies, geopolitical struggles, Kremlin insights. It's all gonna be there. But first we must penetrate the body of Ukrainian history, deep and with tremendous force. I wanted to start off with Bogdan Khmelnytsky, but uh, Kirill proposed that we should begin with the prehistoric kingdom of ancient Ukras instead. Yeah, so, well, what I wanted to propose was that we briefly discuss um, the early history of the territory, which is called Ukraine nowadays, well, where, where it all comes from and how we ended up here. Uh, the Khmelnytsky uprising is an important point, but I think it's uh, important to understand what actually happened. So, according to official history, uh, I don't know how much of that is real, how much of that is just mythology. One second, but this is uh, such a rare phrase on our podcast, according to official history, <laughs> instead of according to Galkovsky. <laughs> so, uh, the Russian state uh, was founded by Vikings who came over um, and settled in Novgorod and then Kiev. They made Kiev their capital for many reasons. For example, because it was uh, basically in the middle of the trading route between Scandinavia and uh, the Eastern Roman Empire. But anyway, uh, Kiev uh, has been called the mother of Russian cities and so on. Basically, what I wanted to explain at first was what an, uh, a Ukraine even is. So the word Ukraine comes from the word Akraina Krai, uh, which means something like border or edge. Or edge. And Ukraine yeah. as such means borderland. It is roughly analogous to... Edgistan. Edgistan, yeah. <laughs> it's roughly comparable to the concept of a march in Western Europe. So a kind of borderland that is on the edge of your core territory and that is more heavily militarized and so on. And basically Ukraine was called this by both sides. So in the east it was the, well, the western edge of the Russian territory, um, bordering Poland and the Bulgars and the, steppe, the various steppe peoples. And... The Polish in the Middle Ages also called it Ukraine because it was, well, the edge of Poland, obviously. So this territory has always been, um, well, it has always been claimed by different nations. Uh, parts of it were, were ruled over for hundreds of years by different steppe nomads, by the Polish, by the Russians, by the Romans, of course. 
um, then by the Ottomans, by the Mongols, and so on and so on. The territory changed hands many times, but the population more or less hasn't really changed in this period in the last thousand years or so. So the word Ukraine means borderland. It is the borderland of Russia, and it was conquered in the Middle Ages by the Polish. Uh, the Polish, they installed a very specific socio-economic system in these lands. Um, <clears throat> a system that was basically feudal in its... Um, so they had huge latifundias, huge plantations, farms, estates, where the local populace, uh, Orthodox Russians, were employed as serfs. And they were ruled over by a Polish landowner elite and their local well, administrative cadres, which were largely made up of um, well Poles, uh, some Western Ukrainians, uh, Lithuanians, Jews. So it was a quite oppressive economic system that also uh, smelt a bit of ethnic discrimination. Of course, this was also religious in nature because the populace was Orthodox and the Polish were Roman Catholics. And this all led to high tension. Also, on this land uh, were living Cossacks. Cossacks exist wherever borderlands existed in Russia. Fun fact, um, the very eastern edge of the Russian state in the Middle Ages, in the late Middle Ages, or in the early modern period in Siberia, they were also called Ukraine because they were also borderland. So the name isn't just for this region, even it was basically used on every side of Russia, wherever there was uh, some kind of borderland where the Russian territory bordered other people's territory. And yeah, and even now, even now, the Far East is heavily populated by Ukrainians. I guess this is their ethnic memory <laughs> talking. They can't live uh, in the middle of the country. They need to be on the edge. Yes. So uh, what happened on this territory that was um, populated by southern Russian peasants and Cossacks was that the Poles uh, started confiscating more land and even disowning the last uh, Russian landowners. And they had these huge estates and they were strengthening the religious discrimination also to try to convert people into Roman Catholicism. And in the first decades of the 17th century, there were many uprisings um, against Polish rule. The Chmielicki uprising of uh, 1648 is actually just the culmination. There were like in uh, huge uprisings in 1625, in 1630, 35, 37, and the last one, uh, the last big one before Chmielicki in only 10 years earlier by the Cossacks Astranian and Guni. So these uprisings were suppressed and the Polish reacted by making even harsher laws against what they call sedition. And this is when the uprising of Bogdan Chmielicki who was Getman of the Zaporozhian, the Zaporovsky Kazakhe, the Zaporozhian Cossacks began. Um, the Zaporovsky Kazakhe were one of the old original 
Cossacks, which means that they exist. They were not funded by the Russian state, as many of the other, especially the later Cossacks, like the Orenburg Cossacks, the Siberian Cossacks, and so on. But they were very old, and you can imagine them as kind of, uh, you know, in one of the Pirates of the Caribbean movies, they go to Tortuga, the pirate heaven in the Caribbean. And the territory of the Zaporovsky Kazaki was pretty much this, but on land. So they were like a huge uh, pirate band uh, overland that were just robbing everyone and having fun. And But they had some kind of national feeling, some kind of Russian national feeling, and decided to rise up against their Polish oppressors together with the peasantry and the local elites, or whatever was left of them. And uh, they were, of course, supported by the Russian state in this uh, a few years later. Yeah, you can already see some clear resemblances of today's geopolitical situation. And probably the future will be a lot like it was back then. Melnitsky's uprising was a huge war that uh, lasted almost 10 years. And uh, in the end, um, it ended with the so-called Pereyaslavska Rada, um, which was a treaty signed by Khmelnytsky and the Russian Tsar that was an oath of loyalty. So basically the Zaporovsky Kazaki, they entered the Tsar's service and became his vessels. And this meant that the territories uh, which were before occupied by the Polish were reunited with the Russian state, uh, the Russian Tsardom, as it was called at that moment, and it turned into a Russian-Polish war at the end. Anyway, that also lasted for more than uh, a decade, which also ended with a Russian victory and the liberation of other territories that were occupied by the Polish, like uh, Smolensk and the left bank Ukraine. So for the first time in, I don't know, 300-400 years, these territories, which had been Russian in the early Middle Ages, uh, returned to Russian rule. And, well, that's basically the beginning of the modern history of uh, the territory that is known as Ukraine. You have another term for Ukraine is also um, Little Russia. Little Russia is the historical name, you know, as it was uh, often, for example, the Greeks, uh, you had uh, Little Greece was um, like the actual Greece and Large Greece or Magna Grecia was the Greek territories in southern Italy. So this term, it was uh, basically what the locals called themselves and what uh, the larger Russian state knew the territory as Little Russia, Malorossia. It is uh, actually a term that is taken from ancient Greek directly, like a literal translation. So basically the people who lived there, they didn't think of themselves as Ukrainians. They thought of themselves as Malorossia, Little Russians. Yes, about the first uprisings of the Zaporozhian host, uh, you mentioned the uprising of Austrian and Guni by the Cossacks that failed. Yes. There is a good modern movie 
which is called Taras Bulba, a movie shot in 2009. It's really good and you can watch it to learn more about the Zaporozhian Cossacks and their struggle against the Poles. Oh yes, the, the movie is pretty good. I watched it too. And of course it is based on a book by Nikolai Gogol, Mala Russian author who was also very fond of his regions history and wrote uh, the original novel Taras Bulba. Okay, so is that enough for historical overview? Should we jump uh, to the 19th century? Well, yes, I think. Well, one thing that has to be mentioned is that uh, what is known today as Ukraine is uh, not by any means identical to the historical Malorossia, the modern Uh, state of so-called state of Ukraine includes many territories that have no actual relation to uh, Zaporozhians or to Malorossia or anything that were just randomly added like for example New Russia, Novorossia, which is completely different uh, historically and geographically from Little Russia. Um, Novorossia was just uh, the steppes north of the Crimea which were not populated at all. So there were no cities there, no, no, no anything. There were just nomads, uh, steppe nomads, grazing their, yes. their, their horses. And basically in the 18th century, this territory was colonized by the Russian state. It was just empty and uh, Russian settlers and architects and soldiers went there and built cities like from the ground up, from zero, from nothing in the naked steppe. Modern Ukraine is like four different things. It's... Malorossia, which uh, his, the history of which we have just talked about, Navarossia, which is an 18th century colonization project, which has nothing to do with Malorossia, then Crimea, which is closer to Navarossia in its uh, history as part of the Russian state, and of course Western Ukraine, Galicia, uh, Volhynia, which have a separate history that we might mention a bit later. So basically that was what uh, the situation was like in the period which we're going to talk about now, the 19th century. Modern Ukraine is like uh, Power Rangers in their final form. Yes, little Russian identity in the Russian Empire is an um, interesting topic because uh, it has never by anyone been regarded as um, a separate people or separate nation. It was, of course, uh, there w was some kind of uh, little Russian identity, but it was more like a regional identity. It was like, um, it can be compared to like Germany, like Bavarians and Saxons and so on. So, of course, um, like Bavarians are like, yes, we are Bavarians, we are nothing like Saxons, but actually they're all just Germans. And it's just uh, interesting. For example, uh, if you look at the literature, if you look at Chekhov, Uh, Chekhov was not very fond of southern Russians. He often mentioned how they're like lazy and indolent and stuff like this and uh, cheat often. Well, he didn't like them. And he used the word which nowadays is used as a slur for Ukrainians, chachol. But in Chekhov's uh, usage of the word or like how people just use the word, it doesn't mean that chachol is uh, some kind of guy who is not Russian, who is a foreigner or something like this. Uh, Chachol is just 
southern person like uh, if you're from Rostov or Yekaterinodar or Krasnodar as it is called today or Azov or whatever um, anywhere in the south even in the part that has never been uh, even claimed by Ukrainians then Chekhov would call these people Khakhui Khokhols because the, yeah, the even now the prejudice still exists but now they're not called Khakhui uh, the Krasnodar region Russians, but they are called Kubanoids instead. It's the same racism, uh, but with a new twist. Yes, pretty much. So because they are different in their mentality, uh, somewhat. Because southern people are always different from northern ones. Yeah, I mean that's just normal. It's everywhere like this. It's like, uh, but uh, I don't actually think the difference is larger than like you know in Italy. In northern Italy and southern Italy, they have like huge cultural and uh, social differences there, and I don't even think that in Russia it's that hard. No, it's maybe it's a bit like southern states in America, maybe even less. I'm not sure, but uh, somewhere along those lines. Okay, hohol. The word hohol comes from the Cossack haircut, right? Yes. The half-shaven head with the ponytail the Sar- latest Sarmatian fashion of the time that a lot of Polish nobles, Ukrainian Cossacks and uh, Turkic warriors were cutting their hair in that style. So yes, the word Hohol comes from the ponytail on their heads because uh, it looked a bit different because Russians never cut their hair in such a way with the ponytail. So Hohol, it's uh, literally ponytail on their heads not that derogatory yes yes of course it's uh, just it's not uh, to say that every ukrainian actually in the 19th century uh cut their hair like that no nobody was like... wearing it in the 19th century actually it <laughs> sure was, it's, it's just uh, like so it's some, a funny meme it's light-hearted fun basically yeah, banter so about the ukrainian language it's uh, also a quite interesting topic which appeared in for the first time ever in the 19th century the ukrainian language was kind of a project of bored um, provincial intelligentsia so these were intellectuals who were sitting around in Morosia. Uh, the fashion of romanticism was just coming over from europe to russia and you know romanticism the german project where the peasants are the true nation and a kind of romanticization of rural life, um, of regional identities, um, and so on. And so these uh, Mala Russian intellectuals, they started writing poems in a refined version of the dialect that the local peasants were speaking. Uh, the dialect they were speaking uh, was called Surzhik, or is still called, it basically still what people in southern Russia and most of Ukraine speak, it's uh, just a southern dialect of the Russian language, a rural dialect that is uh, being spoken in large parts of Ukraine and southern Russia, or not that much anymore, but, you know, um, it's basically what the people were just speaking like, and people in Rostov, they still kind of speak like this, and yeah. So uh, people like Skavaroda, Shevchenko, uh, they were writing poems in this dialect, of course in a more 
beautiful version of it. Uh, they were professional writers and poets like Shevchenko, who was well regarded in St. Petersburg by the Tsar's court, and they liked him because it was just a cute little project. It was funny. Um, it made the peasants feel good about themselves. But of course, none of them uh, regarded Ukrainian as some kind of different language or anything. Uh, like Shevchenko, uh, the most famous, I guess, Ukrainian poet, he even wrote his personal diaries in normal literary Russian and so on, and he never spoke this to other people. It's just, uh, uh, you know, it was how in France there was the same. You had uh, people in southern France writing um, poems in Occitan, the language of the south of France, which uh, disappeared in the Middle Ages. And it was just some kind of romantic LARPing. Uh, so pretty harmless, actually. And that's why the state didn't repress them or anything. As I said, Shevchenko was well regarded in St. Petersburg. But of course, uh, this was of interest to other people, uh, namely the Austrian general staff, um, which started to invest in this uh, provincial intellectual project and the Germans too. Basically, it was a concentrated military intelligence effort to turn this romantic movement into an actual political movement. Ukrainian nationalism of the late 19th century was still very different from what we now can understand as Ukrainian nationalism. The Ukrainian nationalists of the late 19th century, which is when they appeared, like the Ukrainian movement um, as a political movement appeared around 1875 or more or less and it was quite something actually it was mostly uh, urban intellectuals uh, romantic youth who took it up like 99 percent of uh, the more russian peasants still well they didn't know that they were supposed to be ukrainians or anything you are saying that uh, kiev was the hotspot of ukrainian nationalism um, not so much, actually. Kiev was a hotspot of Russian nationalism. Uh, yes, so what's the, the region where these urban intellectuals then created identity? Well, of course, part uh, in Kiev, um, in, well, basically in all the, the Russian cities, um, they were, well, there was an intelligentsia, like in Kharkiv, Nikolaev, everywhere. Some were sitting in St. Petersburg writing this. <laughs> So what happened was that the Ukrainian movement was instrumentalized by the Austrians, in part to support uh, the grand project of, you know, uh, the liberation of Poland, uh, which was important for the European powers uh, to uh, make Russia weaker, and of course just to sow discontent. The Ukrainian separatists were regarded as freaks, they weren't regarded as some kind of nation to be oppressed because nobody belonged to this nation except like a few hundred people who wrote essays and poems and whatever. And uh, this all was more or less unimportant until uh, the beginning of World War I when the Austrian propaganda went into overdrive. But still then the Ukrainian nationalist movement was dominated not by the kind of hardcore um, rural anti-Semitic uh, neo-Nazi wing that is in charge of Ukrainian nationalism today, but it was still mostly Poles and Jews uh, who had their own um, gripes with the Russian Empire, 
who made up uh, the most uh, of the Ukrainian movement, like, uh, for example, Mikhail Menchikov, um, when he described a pro-Ukrainian demonstration in Kiev, they were waving red flags, shouting like, uh, long live Austria, and half of them were just Poles and uh, Jews. So this is what the Ukrainian nationalist movement was still like at the beginning of World War One. Mm. What uh, Ukraine was actually different from Russia is that uh, the Pale of Settlement held all the Jewry in modern-day Belarus, uh, Ukraine, Lithuania and Poland. So Jewish population was a lot bigger in Ukraine than it was in Russia proper. Yes, Russia. yes this is true, which also led to the famous um, pogroms uh, later during the Civil War when uh, Ukrainian nationalism took a turn um, and uh, became a non-Jewish phenomenon. So basically what I wanted to say is that this is where Ukrainian nationalism comes from and modern Ukrainian nationalism has absolutely nothing to do with it. So modern Ukrainian nationalism has nothing to do with this uh, romantic movement of the 19th century, which was just a kind of intellectual game to kill the time. Um, it comes from the socialist revolutionary Petlura. Uh, Petlura became actually the most um, visible radical Ukrainian nationalist in, during the civil war after the end of World War I and the revolution, which threw the country into chaos. And um, there was a Ukrainian People's Republic proclaimed, the Ukrainska Narodna Respublika, in late 1917, it was not supported by the Entente or by anyone. And it was a socialist project, basically. And it was uh, then there was a coup d'etat when uh, Getman Skaropatsky, a general of the Russian Imperial Army, uh, supported by the Austrians and the Germans, um, overthrew the Ukrainian People's Republic and created the Ukrainian state. Petlura wrote, he used an interesting term, Ukrainstvo. Ukrainism. Ukrainism, yes. And not uh, a state of being, but it's an It's act. a political it's movement, a yeah. Yes, it's a political movement and he clearly saw that in the terms that he was using. Yes, because Petlura, he was not uh, actually, you know, a nationalist or anything. Uh, Petlura was started out as a socialist revolutionary. Petlura was a hardcore left-wing. He was kind of, you know, like if you imagine the anti-colonial African liberation movements. So Petlura was probably closest to this. So why wasn't he friends with the Bolsheviks? Well, because he wanted to be uh, independent from them. Yes. No, they had, of course, their own uh, ideology. Petlura, he became leader of the nationalist wing in 1905, I think. There was a split. In, so Petlura was a member of the Ukrainian Social Democratic Workers' Party, which was just the southern wing of the, well, Russian Social Democratic Workers' Party, which was just the future Bolsheviks. And there was a split between them and the Ukrainian Revolutionary Party, which was the more nationalist wing, national populist wing. It is uh, quite interesting how um, Pitlura 
he at that time he was still uh, in the tradition of the Ukrainian national movement and also the socialist movement. He was very pro-Jewish. Um, he even during the pogrom in Poltava, uh, he even led. He was the military leader of one of the Jewish self-defense units there, uh, which is quite interesting because he became famous for his uh, incredibly beastly Jewish pogroms during the civil war. So basically, Petlura rose up with his insurrectionary army against the Skarapatsky, who was supported by the Germans. They killed a lot of Jews, and uh, some bad stuff happened. And yeah, that's uh, pretty much. <laughs> and let's talk a bit about his army. Who was marching along Petlura? Uh, there is an interesting Ukrainian phenomenon of Gaidamaki. Are you familiar with them? Uh, Gaidamak, yes. There was like a Gaidamak uprising. Gaidamak is a Turkic term, actually. Mm -hmm. Gaidamaki fought against the Russian Empire and uh, Poland at the same time, which is quite interesting. What was uh, their end goal? Well, the Gaidamaki, I think they were, um, they appeared un after the um, peace of Andrusov. Um, after the Russian-Polish war, which happened after the uprising, um, the Gaidamaki, well, I think it was just a more or less regular peasant uprising. So, you know, like what happened in Germany after the Reformation, uh, they were just uh, robbing shit and uh, killing people and just having fun. It's interesting why the Turkic term. I need to research that. And all the paintings of Gaidamaki, they looked extremely Turkic. Not even because of the hohol on shaven heads and uh, large Turkic mustaches, but <laughs> in every way possible, they look Turkic. Well, that's actually quite easy to explain. Uh, it uh, was already said by Andrei Strazhenka, who was a, a Russian historian. And he uh, was a member of the Kiev Club of Russian Nationalists. He was a professor of history and a specialist in uh, the history of Little Russia. And he wrote that um, Ukrainists, as they were called back then still, because uh, nobody thought of them as a nation, but as a political movement, the Ukrainists, uh, these are people who don't want to have anything to do with the Russian ancestry. And so they revert to whatever was there before Russia. And before Russia, they were just Turkic nomadic peoples. And so they kind of laughed as uh, Turks a lot of the time. <laughs> On all levels, except physical, I am a Turk. Yes. But about Petlura, so what was his fate? Uh, Petlura, he led an uprising against the, um, against the regime of Getman Skarapatsky, then he still held some territory. Um, yeah. And he kind of was friendly with the Polish, more or less. He was trying to diplomatically kind of uh, stay afloat. He had, um, he talked talk to the Soviets um, and so on. He was yeah. uh, pretty okay with the Soviets actually before, um, the, uh, before early 1919. Hetman Skarapatsky is the same man that Rangel joined his army at first. Yes, but then so Skarapatsky wasn't a Ukrainian nationalist at all. Like, uh, Skarapatsky was a 
representative of the little Russian nobility. He was a general of the Russian Imperial Army, an aristocrat. And uh, what he wanted was basically to expand the rights of the little Russian nobility and have more autonomy in questions like taxes and so on. And uh, Skaropatsky's vision was for a Russian Empire but and Ukraine as part of the Russian Empire, but with more regional autonomy. Uh, so he was not a separatist or nationalist at all, as it is uh, often presented. And it was the most sane, I think, wing of uh, Ukrainian patriotism that Alas, you could imagine. He, he soon fell. Yes. as his surname proclaimed. Uh, Ukrainians <laughs> had uh, really funny surnames. You have to admit it, because they always had uh, different surnames from Velika Rossi. Yes, and especially, and especially the uh, Zaporozhian Cossack uh, surnames, they were extremely funny, because they were yeah. made up from uh, like nicknames and sometimes very unflattering nicknames. Um, For example, head of the government in Petlurist, Ukraine in 1918, his surname was Liza Gub, <laughs> which uh, could be translated as Licky Lips. <laughs> Can you imagine an entire chunk of your country becoming autonomous uh, with the Licky Lips in charge of the government? <laughs> okay, enough. I think uh, let's uh, talk about the demise of Petlura and move on. Oh yes, uh, Petlura, he uh, well, he lost the war against the Soviets. Karabatsky was also overthrown and then Petlura was uh, in emigration and he was murdered in Paris in uh, 1926 by a certain Samuel Schwarzburg. Um, a Jew from the city of Ismail, and he uh, killed uh, Pitlura because his family, uh, some of his family were killed in the pogroms uh, instigated by Pitlura's army. And fair enough, fair enough. Yes, and uh, it was uh, in court in the French court. They talked a lot about well what Pitlura's people were doing and uh, they were really just committing war crimes all the fucking time and they murdered a lot of innocent Jews and it went so far uh, the depictions of the horrible crimes committed by Pitlura's army that uh, Schwarzburg wasn't even sentenced to jail. Hmm. So Pitlura liked Jews but still <laughs> murdered them. Murdered, well, it was murdered, well, as I said, fuck. it was uh, part of the evolution of the Ukrainian movement, which began as a Jewish-led philo-Semitic movement, but then when it was dominated by the socialist revolutionary types, the populists, um, who more pander to the prejudices of the locals, and uh, of course Ukrainians um, are famously anti-Semitic, um, like uh, yeah. to a degree that is probably can't be easily understood by people from uh, other European it's, countries. Uh, impossible or, to understand because the last two presidents of uh, modern Ukraine were Jewish <laughs> yes. with the incredibly anti-Semitic populace. It's a miracle. How do they do it? And <laughs> yeah. So what happened then? Uh, ah, what also has to be mentioned is the question of Galicia. We haven't talked much about it. Western Ukraine was yes. not part of Little Russia, was not part of New Russia. 
uh, Western Ukraine was for centuries separated from the Russian world. It was uh, ruled by the Polish, sometimes by the Germans, by the Austrians, um, different parts of it, some by the Hungarians, so within Austria. Western Ukraine is actually uh, pretty different from Russia, the culture, the language. The Galician dialect is much closer to Polish than uh, stuff like Surzyk. And uh, the Galicians are basically, they really are not uh, that Russian anymore culturally. But still, there was a large pro-Russian movement in Galicia, the Russophile movement. It was mostly because um, in the Austrian parts, uh, because um, the Austrians were pretty harsh on the Slavic populace of the eastern fringes. Um, and being pro-Russian for Galicians was just a question of national self, self-determination. So um, they wanted to have better conditions from the Austrians and they did this by applying pressure by being pro-Russian. And this went so far as to that during World War I, the Austrians were extremely scared of a pro-Russian uprising in Galicia, uh, which was still Austrian at that time. And they even set up uh, one of the earliest concentration camps ever, the Talerhof uh, concentration camp, uh, where they put the basically all leading people of the Russophile movement and also random people who were accused of being Russian spies. They killed a lot of people there. Um, it was uh, very harsh conditions. And basically the Austrians uh, destroyed the pro-Russian movement in Galicia with extreme prejudice was extreme brutality and there was not much of it left but still mm, actually there was enough left of the pro-russian sentiment that when the white army during the russian civil war um, when they took kiev which was actually quite easy there were like three thousand white guard soldiers who like almost without a fight they took Kiev from 20,000 uh, Ukrainian soldiers. They were not very fanatic in their defense of Kiev. Um, General Bredov, who was leading the white troops at that moment in that region, said that Kiev has never been Ukrainian and never will be, and they declined to even uh, enter into negotiation with the Ukrainians, uh, either with Pitlura or with other uh, Ukrainian movements. Uh, The only Ukrainian force with which the whites uh, negotiated was the so-called Ukrainian Galician army in western Ukraine. And um, these negotiations were very fruitful. And uh, in the end, the Ukrainian Galician army, it agreed to uh, unite itself with the armed forces of South Russia, of the White Guard. So basically the Western Ukrainians, uh, they joined uh, the whites in fighting against the Ukrainian separatists and the communists. But nowadays... It's quite a a conundrum that the people who actually are different from Russians, Galicians, that weren't part of uh, Russia for the most part, were not part of the Ukrainianism project that Malo-Russian intelligence uh, created. I mean, it's still like this. Uh, like, Galicians are, um, they care a lot less about uh, Putin and Russia uh, than, uh, like, the eastern half of Ukraine, where people 
um, unnamed Ivanov, and when they look into the mirror, they yeah. just see a Moscow. And um, so they they have to prove. To, <laughs> so they break. They, they have to. They, the they have to prove to themselves that they are not Russian, and that's why they uh, volunteer for the army and become activists and so on. And the Galicians don't give a fuck. They are actually uh, different from Russians, so they don't have anything to prove. They don't have this feeling yeah. of um, having to commit violence like uh, Galicia during the Donbas War. Uh, Galicia was the region where the least volunteers came from. Um, they didn't want to fight in Donbass because to them this is literally just uh, other people and other people. They are foreigners and so why would they care about... Uh, yeah, it's a popular myth that uh, the West-East divide is so important in Ukraine. It is in some sense, but not in that the Galicians were a driving force for Ukrainization or whatever, an anti-Russian sentiment. Uh, so that's one myth that we debunked in this episode, at least. Okay, so Pitlura, Skaropatsky, uh, Machno, and the rest of the uh, murderous gang that uh, controlled parts of Ukraine during civil war, they all failed. That's how Soviet Ukraine began. What was Soviet plan for Ukrainian prolonged existence and government? So the communist view of Ukraine is a quite interesting topic um, because it, uh, well, it calls back to many other questions, uh, some that we have already talked about on this podcast. But uh, to repeat a bit, mm, the main objective of the Soviet uh, ethnic or national policies was to put the great Russians, uh, so the vast majority of the Russian population, of the Russian Empire, into who were regarded as uh, privileged oppressors. So basically very close to what uh, people who are called woke nowadays in America say. It's very close in the rhetoric. Um, these people were saying that Russia was like a racist, colonialist, imperialist state and the great Russian population was uh, at fault uh, by being complacent with it. So the Russians, the ethnic Russians, they are a bad ethnicity and have to be, and people have to be freed from this bad ethnicity. And what the communists did uh, was that they wanted to destroy the Russian heartland, uh, like the continuous territory where the ethnic Russians live, and divide the Russian ethnicity as a concept, because it was simply too large and too strong to be suppressed uh, by the explicitly anti-Russian Soviet regime. So you had many of these Bolsheviks talking about how Russia is an oppressive concept on itself, and the word Russia shouldn't be used. Uh, ethnic Russians are evil imperialists. And to weaken them, these evil Russian imperialists, large parts of the Soviet Union were given over to minorities as so-called national republics. Um, an example of this uh, is uh, Karelia, uh, a very northern territory on the border to Finland, where like 90% of the population were ethnic Russians. This became the Karelian National Republic. Um, if you hear the Soviet term National Republic, what you should really hear is ethnostate. That's what it means. 
is a um, uh, almost sovereign part of the country where the titular nation is in control. And they did the same thing in Ukraine. These policies were called Korenization, uh, Korenizatsia in Russian, which could be translated as returning to roots. Mm. It meant that the local communist parties uh, had to have a certain percentage of the local population, that the governments should be headed by the local population, that the children in the schools shouldn't be forced to learn Russian anymore. Uh, but this policy was soon abandoned because it was just too impractical. Um, so basically what they did in Ukraine was called Ukrainization. Uh, it was a very specific campaign by the Soviet government to turn the peasantry of Malorossia and Novorossia into Ukrainians. It's also important to mention that Lenin completely reworked the map and the borders of Ukraine, gave away entire new Russia was given to Ukrainian Soviet Republic from Donbass to Odessa, territory that was never considered Malorossia or uh, Little Russia before. Yes. So you had tens of millions of peasants who didn't know uh, the Ukrainian language, who didn't know that they were actually Ukrainians. And uh, this was what the campaign of Ukrainization was supposed to rectify. Uh, academic Ukrainian, so the modern Ukrainian language was constructed in the 20s, 30s, and uh, because before that it simply didn't exist, like uh, Soviet Ukrainian, which is what is spoken by modern Ukrainians or learned by modern Ukrainians, is uh, something that was made up in the 1920s, 1930s by the Soviet regime. It has little relation to Surzhik, it has little relation to what the 19th century romantics were writing in, it has little relation to the Galician dialects, so it was basically made up on the spot. And this was all, like, officially. Uh, Soviet passports included information about the ethnicity of the citizen, and uh, the Soviet government simply wrote down Ukrainian for tens of millions of people, like literally tens of millions. And a few years later, the collectivization happened. Uh, that is, farmers being forced into communist slave farms, the kolkhoz. And uh, this is also when the foundational myth of modern Ukraine, the Gorodomor, happened. Gorodomor is to modern Ukraine what the Holocaust is to Israel, more or less. It is the foundational myth of a huge oppression, a huge crime, uh, which basically gives you moral legitimacy to have a nation-state. But this is, of course, quite different from what actually happened. And this is where the free segment of our podcast ends. Free yourself from tedious American monoculture and subscribe to Russians with Attitude. Thank you.